So today in the Reading Corner, I'm delighted to be welcoming David Oloshugo. Today we are going to be celebrating the publication of the illustrated version of Black British History, which is illustrated by Jake Alexander and Melanie Taylor. So first of all, a great big welcome, David. Uh, Thank you very much. Good to be here. So Black and British uh, was originally, the adult book was originally published in 2017. And then we had a short essential history published last year. And as you point out in your adult book, this is not the first book about Black British history. We recently had, for example, Professor Hakim Adi on this podcast. And you also mention in your book an epiphanal and formative experience of reading Peter Fryer. So I'd love to know um, from you uh, what you were looking to contribute to this growing body of research and writing. I mean, it seems to me that um, everything that I do uh, as a television presenter, producer, and as a writer is fundamentally about writing the empire back into British history. And that really is the, the essence of what Black and British is. It's to try to reframe, as it says in the book, to reframe Black British history um, to be an imperial history. Because I think what happened in Britain is that we took an American template of African-American history and we applied it to Britain. And I think it is possible for the most part, though not entirely, to tell the history of of, of the African-American experience through the story of events and histories and people and phenomena that take place within the continental United States. I don't think that's possible. Uh, when dealing with black British people, because Britain's British history is fundamentally for 500 years imperial and global. So it has to be told in Africa. It has to be told in the New World, in North America and in the Caribbean. So the book um, aims to reframe black British history about not only what happens in Britain, but what happens in the parts of the world in which Britain and British power clash and collide with the experiences and the lives of people of African heritage. But the book had one other sort of big aim, which is to try to escape the prison of biography. Now, that is not to say that biography is unwelcome and that there aren't biographies in the book. There are long passages that centre the story around individuals. But very often, Black British history is only biographical. Mm -hmm. It is limited and imprisoned by a biography. And what it misses are phenomena. What it misses are economics. It misses forces that are not experienced through the lives of individuals. And it also, I think there's a risk of distortion because to take, for example, the black Georgian population, those whom we know about were those who are literate, who are essentially by the very dint of the fact that they are literate, are a minority and unusual for that regard. There's so many supplementary questions that I have, but I'll just pick up one of them to begin. And that is that uh, one of the central themes of your writing, as you've said, is that we see British history in the context of global history The more you read and learn about the past, the more impossible it is to disentangle the stories of one nation or race from another. And that can feel overwhelming. So coming at this from the perspective of a school teacher, and in particular, a primary school teacher, um, we have to think about the best starting points. And I'm interested to know what your thoughts are about that. Well, when I talk, and I I talk in lots of schools, when I talk to young people about 
empire, not just the British empire, but imperialism as a force that made the world that we live in today, what I tend to do is I tend to talk about their daily lives and the things that they encounter, the language they use, the food that they eat, the words and the phrases and the names of buildings, of streets, uh, and to try to to reference their own experiences within the wider story of empire. Because all of us, every day of our lives, uh, are engaged in phenomena that are the result of the age of empire. For example, most of us will use a word that comes from the Nahuatl language of the Azteca people. So when we say tomato or tobacco or chocolate, we are using Nahuatl words because all of those did not exist outside of the Americas before the end of the 15th century. So all our lives are just saturated in products and cultures and cuisines and language and words that come from the age of empire. So I think once you can start pointing this out, uh, that it's all around us, uh, the imperial story, the products of empire, uh, I think it's easier to relate to. So in the preface to your adult book, uh, you talk about the lost history uh, because Black experience wasn't recorded. Uh, You've obviously done a very good job of uncovering some of those lost stories. Uh, But as you've already said in this podcast, by their very nature, some of them are uncommon experiences. When we think about Equiano or Sarah Forbes Bonetta or William Tull or Mary Seacole, they all did extraordinary things. As a historian, I'm just interested how you go about recovering the stories that have been lost. And will we ever know the stories of ordinary Black people living in Britain in the past? Well, I mean, there's there's new discoveries all the time. There are, there are historians like Caroline Bressy who, I mean, do remarkable archival work, scouring documents, newspapers, uh, other sources to try to find fragments of the lives uh, of lost people of colour in Britain's story. But I think, you know, that there is we think part of the job to me, I think, of being an historian is to come to terms with the difficult fact that some things are unknowable. Again, I think, you know, the place where that frustration is deepest for people who study Black British history is what we know and what we don't know about the Black Georgian population. Uh, We don't know their numbers. We don't really know whether they formed discrete communities. We don't really know where they lived, where they congregated, in particularly in London. Um, We get snatches, really tantalising, almost teasing fragments of their lives and their social lives through the diaries of some, through the newspaper reports of others. And this just is, I'm afraid, an unpleasant fact of life, is that Mm -hmm. some things are historically unknowable and we may never get a better grasp. But, you know, the the number of vistas in history that we thought were closed and the horizon had been viewed and we never would go further and then new discoveries or new interpretations emerge and suddenly we know a lot more. So uh, it's sort of, I think you have to be both hopeful and also realistic that there are Mm -hmm. some things that are unknowable. But I think, again, that big reframing issue is part of my thinking. We need to escape, as I said, biography. We also need to do something which um, I think very often is missed out of Black British history. And that is because events like Black History Month that I am enormously supportive and of and a champion of, they necessarily skew things towards somewhat celebratory histories. Very often Black history circulates around a key word, and that word is contribution. And that's really important. It's entirely legitimate. It's vital. Uh, It's particularly important for young people. But the story of Britain's relationship with people of African heritage is also the story of race 
and racism and the ideas that were gathered together and sewn, patched together to form you know, the racial thinking that's still alive and well, sadly, in the world that we live today. I think it also needs to be the history of the authors and architects of racial thinking. And in that way, the book you mentioned earlier, Peter Fryer's Staying, Staying Power, you know, really is the book that you know, my work is an homage to, because he also, as well as recovering lost lives and lost biographies, he also spent a great deal of that book talking about uh, how these ideas of race, inferiority, superiority, how they were created, how they were propagandized, how they were propagated throughout our society across the empire. And that, that form of black history is a lot less pleasant than encountering people like Equiano and Mary Prince and Mary Seacole. But I think it's really vital. That idea of escaping biography already from talking to you is one that I'm going to take forward in my own thinking. And I think what I connect to in what you've just said is that you see residual attitudes today that were really formed in the past. So the whole idea around science and racism, I see a connection between that and the sort of ugly racist football chants. The perception that young black men are troublemakers, you see that in the story that you talk about, Charles Wooten, the sailor who was killed in the riots in Liverpool. So this to me seems much more important than just the vignettes of their lives. That's entirely what I believe, is, is that we need to confront that much less pleasant task of examining the impact of racial thinking upon lives and communities and upon the thinking of white British people, uh, as well as recovering uh, lost biographies and lost communities. And I mean, here's the irony. I mean, people like me, uh, we find ourselves arguing that Britain as a nation needs to be more honest about its history and needs to confront the aspects of British history that are not celebratory, the inglorious chapters, the, uh, the figures from the past who are not heroic, or for that matter, the non-heroic chapters of the lives of people who are regarded as heroes. I don't think that we can make that appeal for a more holistic uh, and you know, more challenging approach to history while at the same time, not having that same sort of forensic and uh, all-encompassing approach to Black British history. It also, it can't, it can't be a form only of reassurance, of contributions, of things that make us feel good. That is important, that is vital, that is legitimate. But I think Black history also needs to be confrontations with very, very difficult histories. Can I get to the thorny issue of what we do about the remnants of this less-than-glorious past the statues, the building names, the companies whose wealth was built on the slave trade. As a historian, what are the best things that we can do about that? Well, I think the first challenge that we face is um, seeing through the false flag arguments that are being uh, propagated uh, and spread throughout our society now. And I think one of the most obvious of those is that it, statues are history, or that statues are a sort of somehow an honest representation of a history. Not only are statues, for the most part, not an honest representation of history, statues are incapable of performing that function. This idea that statues represent history, or and that they represent the views of people at the time when those statues erected, that's demonstrably untrue. It's also very often untrue that the statues are historically proximate in any way to the events that they pertain to uh, to record or to or to celebrate. Uh, I mean, the, the, I'm talking to you today from Bristol, where I live. I mean, the classic example is the story of Edward Colston. Colston dies in 1721, 300 years ago. 
his statue that was toppled in 2020 in the centre of Bristol, that was erected in 1895. That Mm -hmm. statue says very little about the life of Edward Colston. It was erected because the merchant elite of Bristol were losing their position in the city because the city was becoming an industrial centre rather than a trading centre, a mercantile centre. And they found, they they took this one figure from their past, this philanthropist who'd also been an extraordinarily significant slave trader, and they tried to make him into a civic saint, creating this calendar of veneration to him and putting this statue up. Now, that statue said nothing about late Victorian Bristol, the merchant elite that erected that statue and the motivations they had for doing so. It also told untruths. That statue claimed on its pedestal, the pedestal is still there, that it was erected on public subscription. That's not true. The public subscription failed because working class people in the Bristol of the 1890s had better things to spend their money on than venerating a slave trader. The statue was paid for, as statues very often are, by small numbers of wealthy men, in this case, a man called John Arrowsmith, who was a member of that merchant elite. Mm -hmm. But most of all, that statue does not tell history because it is silent about the victims. All the statue talks about is, is philanthropy. It doesn't talk about where the source of the money came from. And in his case, much of that money came from the slave trade. He was deputy governor of the Royal Africa Company. And in his time, Involved in that company as deputy governor, as a shareholder, 84,000 approximately people were enslaved and 19,000 people died. They died in the bellies of British slave ships. The statue says nothing about this. So in in order to to talk about the relics of history, we need to recognise that statues are not relics of the history for the most part, that they pertain or they claim to represent. I mean, another example, if I may very briefly, the statue of Clive of India outside uh, the Foreign Office. That statue was erected in 1907. Robert Clive killed himself, committed suicide in 1774. Robert Clive was one of the most controversial, one of the most hated men um, of his time. The statue says nothing about the attitudes of of, um, 1770s Britain towards Robert Clive and says a lot about the ambitions of early 20th century uh, imperialists to create a new fake history of company rule in India for their own political purposes. All of that is invisible in that statue because statues cannot, do not, and were never intended to tell history. So recognising the falsehoods of these culture war arguments is the first step into thinking about the legacy of of these objects, because they do not and are not history. And what about, say, companies that have hundreds of years later and yet their wealth, sugar companies, for instance? The question about companies is really interesting because here, because for the most part politicians aren't involved, and this this debate has not been conscripted into a culture war of division and dissimulation, I think there's amazing progress. Because what is happening across Britain and America and increasingly in other countries is companies are looking into their history and are facing facts that have been buried for decades, sometimes for centuries. So Lloyds of London is currently engaged um, in a piece of archival research to look at the documents and the objects that it holds in its collection that show its involvement in the Atlantic slave trade. Lloyds, as an insurance broker, was heavily involved in the, in the insurance of slave ships. The brewer Green King uh, engaged in similar research uh, recently. The charity, the Roundtree Foundation, four charities under that umbrella, have earlier this year published research into their background. 
Institute. And a few weeks ago, I was contacted by historians asking me to sit on a board for another company with an extremely dark history, who's beginning embarking upon exactly the same work. And some of these companies, and this is true also for universities like Glasgow universities, are when those results come in, when that research shows those connections to slavery, to empire, um, to extractive capitalism, to the violence of empire, they engage in forms of restorative justice. So I think what you're seeing is, is you know, two, in some ways, um, you know, connected stories about the wealth of empire and then the, the misrepresentation of empire and slavery through the memorial landscape. One being distorted by politicians, the other, because it's taking place within the commercial private world, actually far, far more productive and honest and, I think, progressive. I think uh, one of the other things that I wanted to pick up that as a teacher strikes me as really important. You write um, in, in your books about Britain now being a place of mixed heritage. We're living in a time when families include people of different ethnicities, different colours. Um, and it's important that we think very carefully then about how we present history to our children. It seems to me that we need some more thoughtful and authoritative guidance on positive ways to teach black history. I think there's a real demand, and I think we're seeing progress on this, for both the publishing industry and the uh, educational, the, the textbook industry, the, the organisations that produce lesson plans, to um, take a lead here. I'm involved in producing some lesson plans with my older sister, who's a, a doctor of education at the University of Sheffield, and others are engaged in trying to produce resources. Because I think we have to remember that that teachers themselves, like everybody else, have been brought up in a country that's not engaged with these histories. None of this history was taught in my school. If I had not become an historian, if I had not gone looking for these histories, I would know nothing about them. So I think we're starting from a pretty low base, where the background level of knowledge are so low that we're trying, we're sort of starting from the from the ground up, and it's extremely difficult. Uh, and even when the will is there, the knowledge often isn't. I would just like to turn my attention very briefly, if I can, to publishing itself. And I know that you've been involved in something called the Black Writers Guild, mm. uh, because part of the way in which we come to learn about history is through the things that we read. But we have to be sure that the publishing is doing the job that it should as well. Can you tell us a little bit about that work? Well, I'm, I'm just a member. I'm, I'm, there's the people who are leading the Black Writers Guild uh, are, are doing a fantastic job. And I'm, I'm merely uh, one member. And it's effectively a union of black writers. And the, the leadership are holding the publishing industry to account, demanding uh, that the industry look at itself, look at its failing failings, both in terms of what's books get published, which writers have their careers supported and which do not, but also in representation within the publishing industry itself. I've sat in on, I think, just one meeting with a publisher, uh, and it was, you know, these things are raw, because I, I do think the publishing industry, uh, more than any time I've been, uh, since, since I've been involved in it, is aware and is acknowledging its historic failings. I think one of the things people in publishing and television and museums and, and galleries find difficult to come to terms with is the fact that I think the liberal arts is doing particularly bad when it comes to diversity. And people are often very shocked when I say this, but I'm, I'm uh, let me give the reasons for it. I, I'm um, in a sort of very privileged position in a way is that I get to talk to many, many companies every year 
I, I give talks, I go into companies, I advise companies on their diversity and inclusion strategies. Uh, I work with employee research groups to facilitate discussions about these issues. And I work across a huge range of sectors. And it is very difficult to not come away from that without realizing that that sectors in much more commercial, much more financially driven parts of the economy are doing far better than the liberal arts. And I think what happened is that sub, uh, sectors like television and like publishing, full of very nice middle-class liberal people who are opposed to ideas of, of racism and discrimination of, of any form, I think there was a presumption, a cultural presumption within those industries that there would just be nice outcomes. And that didn't happen. So in some ways, the liberal parts of the economy gave themselves a free pass. These changes don't come about um, without proactivity. You have to make these changes. These are big cultural interventions. And when you spend time around publishing or in museums or in television, uh, or for that matter, in universities, you don't see that. You don't see uh, the dynamism of change that you see in, for example, the, the, the city of London. And I think we need to recognize not only do we have a great job of work to do in those liberal in, um, sectors, but that we've failed, that the initiatives of the past 10, 20, 30 years have achieved almost nothing, and that we've normalized the abnormal. We've normalized the idea that minority communities are, uh, are only marginally involved um, working within and being represented by those industries. That's so interesting. I have just one final question for you, and it's around the concept of guilt and that whether feeling guilty about the past and looking inward is perhaps something that stops us moving forward. Well, I don't think guilt, or for that matter, pride, really are appropriate emotions with which to engage with the past. But I think if you invest in the idea that you should feel proud in actions that took place before your birth, in which you had no part, then I think you lay yourself open to the charge that you should also have to face the shame of inglorious chapters of the past that similarly took place before you were birth, before your birth um, by people from from your country. I don't think either of those emotions are sensible, rational, appropriate emotions to go in uh, into the past. I don't feel pride as somebody who's British when I think about the successes, for example, of the British army on the Western Front. I don't feel pride as a Nigerian when I look at the Benin bronzes. Um, I feel sort of, you know, astonishment and fascination with both things. And I think both phenomena need to be better understood. And I feel huge investment in them. But I don't think these are appropriate emotions. And I think this idea that, that, that people are being made to feel ashamed, which is a phrase I hear all the time, I find that quite a sort of a bizarre way of engaging with history. History is not there to allow us to revel in certain emotions. And if you look at history as a thing, the place you go to, to feel pride or other positive emotions, then I think you've, you've kind of crossed this emotional Rubicon. You know, I don't understand, and I, I'm evidently in the minority in this, why people look to history to garner these emotions. Um, but I don't think it's helpful. I feel enormous um, emotionality with with regards to the past. I wouldn't be able to be an historian if it were not, but I tend to feel empathy. I, I tend to feel um, emotions of shock and revulsion or of wonder, but not pride and shame. 
So I think we're all we're always going to have problems being honest about our past if we go into it expecting to feel pride and being upset when we feel shame. I think both emotions are best left at the door before entering the sort of library of history, as it were. What a great place to end on, David. It's been illuminating uh, to talk to you. And thank you so much for taking time out of what I know is a very busy schedule to come and talk to us in the Reading Corner. Thank you very much. Lovely to talk to you. In the Reading Corner is presented by Nikki Gamble and produced by Alison Hughes. If you have enjoyed this podcast, please do leave a review for us. To find out about other projects, including an audience with events and the Exploring Children's Literature Summer School, visit www.exploringchildrensliterature.uk. Join us again soon in the Reading Corner on your favourite podcast platform.